Um, so as Mike mentioned, my name is Jonah Bissell. I'm the associate pastor. Here I see a few new faces, um, and I'm just so happy to see you guys this morning. Um, I saw a bumblebee this morning, and it made me so happy. <laughs> uh, spring is here. You can see it in the banners. And uh, Spring in Maine, summer in Maine, fall in Maine. They're all great, but spring in Maine is, is pretty great, uh, pretty amazing. So yeah, it's great that we're talking about creation this morning. Let me just give a plug. Uh, so we are doing this theology course, and it just so happens that the text that I'll be preaching on this morning almost perfectly coincides with the subject of our theology course. Um, so Louise had asked me today if someone can just drop in, and yes, anyone, if you'd like, can just drop in, it's four o'clock, uh, to at least discuss the doctrine of creation with us in greater detail. Um, so I'll get into it a bit this morning, but uh, if you want to dig a little deeper, please feel free to join us this afternoon. So let me just open our time then with a question. <clears throat> what does it mean to call God creator? What is the doctrine of creation, a theology of creation, what does that actually mean? Or what effect is it meant to have in our life? I'll let you stew on that for a few moments. As you probably know, the doctrine of creation has often been used to answer scientific questions. Questions about how the world came to be, how the universe came to exist, things like that. Now, it's also been used to answer historical questions. Questions like when the universe was created, if we can ask that, how old it is, how long it took, things like that. But what if the doctrine of creation really, for us, means something else? I think in our passage this morning, Paul makes the case that it might at least in this text. So in Acts chapter 17, that is our text, not Isaiah. In Acts 17, Paul delivers his famous speech before the Areopagus Council in the ancient city of Athens in Achaia or Greece. Now in this speech of Paul's, he doesn't mention Jesus. His death on a cross the forgiveness of sins, crucifixion, anything like that. Instead, what do you think Paul talks about? Creation. Creation. In this speech, Paul talks about God, the creator. In effect, he outlines a theology of creation for the Athenians. Now, I would argue that the point of creation... In Paul's speech, as we'll see, is not to make a scientific claim about how the universe came into being or how the world came to exist, nor is it to make a historical claim about how long it took, when it happened, how old the world is. No. Creation, to call God creator for Paul here, is all about connection. It's about creatures connecting with their creator. 
That's the heart of it, at least here in Acts 17. I will say at this point that there are other texts in Scripture that speak about creation. And maybe you could ask those scientific or historical questions of those texts, maybe. But as for this text, Acts 17, 22-31, that is not the main point, all right? Now my purpose, just to be plain with you all this morning, my purpose is not to teach you how to evangelize like Paul. Sometimes preachers do this, they preach Acts 17 and talk about contextualizing the gospel or how to frame your message with a certain type of audience. I'm not really here to do that. Rather, I'm here to restate Paul's speech for us, okay? So rather than aligning us with Paul and the world with the Athenians, we are going to be the Athenians, okay? And hopefully Paul can speak to us. My hope through this message is that through understanding God's role as creator, through understanding a theology of creation as it's presented here, we'd be drawn into further connection with God himself. So really uh, connecting, no pun intended, with my sermon on Easter Sunday about the one thing that really matters, which is a relationship with Jesus Christ. So let me just say a few words about what Paul was doing in Athens. Why was the apostle in this famous Greek city? Well, as we saw last week, a lot of stuff happened. Mike preached about the uh, ministry of Paul, Silas, and Timothy in uh, Macedonia. And so they were in Philippi, and this whole situation with an escape from prison, the release from prison happens. And then from Philippi, which is in Macedonia, kind of in the east, they move west, still in Macedonia, to a place called Thessalonica. Now in Thessalonica, they're persecuted by some of the radical Jewish officials, and they flee Thessalonica to a place called Berea, further to the west, still in Macedonia. Now ultimately in Berea, the folks who persecuted them in Thessalonica come to Berea and try to persecute them there. So the three of them, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, are like, guys, we got to split. We got to go home to our home base in Antioch over in Syria. So the plan is to catch a boat from a port, probably on the coast of Greece. Um, but basically, Silas and Timothy tell Paul to go ahead. We'll meet you there. All right? So Paul goes south to the coast, and near the coast is the city of Athens. And first, Paul goes into the synagogues. He's a Jew, so he speaks to the Jews in Athens. But he also goes to the marketplace, open air, a place where philosophers and Greeks would converse. And here he meets some Epicureans and Stoic philosophers who think that he's introducing a new divinity, a new religion into Athens. Now, Athens at the time was known as one of the most pious, reverent cities in the Mediterranean. They had so many altars and shrines and religious objects and temples. So you'd think that introducing another religion would be no problem, right? Actually, to do that, to introduce a new divinity, a new cultus, with a temple and with rules and requirements and so forth, you had to gain authorization from the state. 
Now, this is kind of like something I'm going through where I'm trying to put a fence in my backyard here in Freeport. Uh, I have to get authorization from the town to do that. And uh, thank you, John, Schwanda, and Peter Gross. It has been a process to do that. Paul would have had to do that in Athens to introduce a new religion. (laughs) He would have had to present a case for this new religion before a certain council. Not the design review board in Freeport, but the Areopagus, okay? So that's ultimately what he does. He's led by these philosophers to the Areopagus, where they think he's going to make a case for this new religion that he wants to introduce the Athenians to. So that is where we get Acts 17, 22. So if you haven't already, friends, please turn with me to Acts chapter 17. If you want to use the Pew Bibles, uh, it can be found on page 926, toward the end. And in just a moment, I will be reading from the English Standard Version. So that is the version that you'll find in the Pew Bibles before you. But uh, before I do that, let us just take a moment to pray for God's blessing upon the reading of his word. Lord God, I pray that you would illuminate what is about to happen. (laughs) This study of Acts 17 exploration, Lord, that we would search through this text for the God who exists behind it, that this word would be a means to a greater end that is connecting with you, O Lord. So I pray that you would bless us with supernatural focus and endurance for the next 25 or so minutes, and that you would confront us and meet us this morning. We love you and praise you now. In Jesus' name, amen. So Acts 17, 22. Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said the following, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the Unknown God. What, therefore, you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God. And perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance 
God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. The word of the Lord, my friends. <laughs> mm. So this passage, as you probably saw, has a pretty basic structure. The first two verses, 22 and 23, introduce the subject of Paul's speech, what he is there to really talk about. Then from 24 through 29, Paul criticizes Athenian religion. He criticizes their use of temples, their offering of sacrifices, and their construction of idols, statues, images. But within this section, it's actually verses 26 through 28, Paul talks about the purpose of God's creation of human beings. And this is related to his critique of sacrifices, but this really gets to the heart of Paul's speech, verses 26 through 28. Now, lastly, at the end, he anticipates a response question, a kind of what now <laughs> response from the Athenians. Now that you've given us this information, what are we to do with it? And he tells them in the last two verses. So that is the basic structure. And now let's just dig into some of the details, all right? So verse 22 reads as follows. <clears throat> It says, Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive, I observe, I've noticed, I'm aware that in every way, in reference to all things, you guys are very religious, God-fearing, pious. The King James says superstitious, but I think this is positive. Paul is currying favor with his audience. He's saying something positive about them. And Athens, like I said, had a reputation in Greek literature. You can find it for being very pious, very religious. Now, while Paul was waiting for his buddies in Athens, he went on a kind of walking tour, alone, I think, and he sees all of these objects of worship. So in verse 23, he talks about it. He says, as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, this could be shrines, temples, the total visual impact of the city. That's what one uh, lexicon says. This is all kinds of objects and structures related to their religion. As I observed these things, Paul said, I even found, I found also an altar with this inscription. To the unknown, or in Greek, agnostos, God. That's where we get the word agnostic, agnostos. This was a God they were uh, observing or honoring, but a God about whom they knew little. They didn't really know much about this God, but felt like he exist, existed. And what's curious about this is that for Greeks, the God of Israel was often referred to as the unknown God. So faithful Jews did not utter the name Yahweh. So this was a nameless deity. Jews were not allowed to make graven images, statues, idols of their God. This was an appearanceless deity. So to Greeks, the God of Israel actually was 
an unknown God. A God known to one people group, but not known to others. Paul says, I'm not here to introduce a new religion. I'm here to talk about a God you already have an altar for. A God you know a little bit about. I'm here to make known the unknown God to you. Well, then he jumps right in, in verse 24, and he identifies this God first as the God who made the world and everything in it. In other words, God the creator. That's where he leads. He says, God, since he made the world, since he made this cosmic home, he is Lord of it. He has authority over it. Being Lord, then, of heaven and earth, This God does not live in temples made by man. (laughs) Here he rails against their building of little temples, little houses for their gods. And here we get claim number one, which is that God built our house. We don't build his. That is claim number one against the practices of the Athenians at the time. Well, moving on then to verse 25, here he critiques their offering of sacrifices. And he says, this God built our house. Uh, he ought not to be put into houses, temples. That's kind of ridiculous. And he says, nor is this God served by human hands. I think the translation serve is actually really good. Think about a waiter or waitress serving food with a hand. This relates to the practice of Folks bringing food, bringing meat and produce and various grain offering to these temples and trying to feed the gods, in effect, is what they were doing. Paul says, this is backwards. (laughs) God doesn't need anything. Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Here we get claim number two which is that God sustains us, we don't sustain him. (laughs) Now, striking here is the word gives, gives in the ESV. Now, in Greek, this is in the present tense, so this is a good translation. It's not as though God gave to all mankind life and breath and everything at some point in the past, And then he kind of went off and did something else. The present tense means zoomed in, regular, progressive, unfolding action. God is giving to all mankind life and breath and everything right now and forever, as long as we're alive. If you have life and breath, existence right now, that means right now God is giving it to you in the present. That's what Paul is saying here. Well, then we get what I said was the heart of the speech in verses 26 through 28. Paul says, not only did this God build our house and does this God currently sustain us, but this God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth. Not only did this God build our house and give us food, he actually made us with his hands. 
From one man, from one human being, he made all the nations that would exist, even determining when they would exist in the boundaries of their dwelling place. God put in all his care, time, attention, if you want to say that about God, all of this effort to build our house, to give us food, to arrange our situation. Why? Why would he do this? We're talking about non-Jews for people who don't know him. Why would God do that? Here we get verse 27. That they should seek God. Perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. And maybe find him. There's a little uncertainty in the, the language in this, in this text. It's, it's a possibility. God did this so that they might, not having the law of Moses, not having the religion of ancient Israel, that these people, through God's beneficence to them, through agriculture and arranging their national boundaries and creating them and giving them a house, that they might seek Him, lay hold of Him. The image is that of Someone who's vision impaired, uh, who's walking in a dark room, who's lost, reaching out, just trying to lay hold of something, trying to find their way home. That's what God wants. That was his purpose in creating. That's what Paul says before the Areopagus. Then Paul shifts midway through verse 27 from the third person to the first. He says, this God is actually not far from each one of us. He identifies with them. For in him we live and move and have our being. Now this statement is a little tricky. Um, Some scholars think Paul is quoting Epimenides, a Greek poet from the, I think, third century But it's not a verbatim quote, and these ideas come from Scripture and elsewhere, so I think it's kind of common knowledge, but it is an idea that the Athenians would have agreed with. So Paul is kind of speaking their language. In him we live and move and have our being. It sounds kind of like we exist inside of God, and that's not really the idea. You could translate this by him. By him we live and move and exist. We owe our very existence to God. That's what Paul is saying here. We are in a state of utter dependence upon God. That's what creation entails. It means that the creature is utterly reliant on the creator for his or her existence. It's, it's inf- implying a relationship of closeness, of God sustaining the creature's life. They're being proximity, closeness between them so that they can seek and find him. Those, those ideas. Well, then in verse 28, toward the end, we get to the third criticism, and that is of idols in Athens. Here he says, as even some of your own poets have said, here he is quoting a poet, Aratus, uh, who wrote a poem, Phenomena, and this is a direct quote, It's a famous poem like the Iliad and the Odyssey. 
Uh, people read this poem, everyone knew of it. He's quoting a source that the Athenians knew about and had read, for we are indeed his offspring. His meaning God's offspring. So being then God's offspring, Paul says, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. In other words, this is claim number three. That is, God made us in his image. We can't make God through our own images. <laughs> that makes no sense. If we resemble God and we are alive and moving around and doing things, then no way are these dead, lifeless, stone-gold sculptures capturing God's essence. No way. God made us in his image. We can't, we shouldn't try to make him through ours. That is claim number three. Now, after all this information, it's likely that the Athenians may want to respond. Now, they don't, but they don't respond quite yet, but Paul anticipates that kind of thinking. He anticipates the question of, you know, what now? Now that you've told me about this God, what are we to do? How should we change our life? That sort of thing. Well, he says in verse 30 that these times of ignorance, these times of reaching out in the darkness, of uh, feeling around for God is the language, those times God has overlooked. The King James says God has winked at. He's, he's tolerated those times. He hasn't immediately punished People for not acknowledging him because the lights were off. But now, whew, people just woke up when I did that. Now, the lights have been turned on. God has revealed himself decisively and completely in the person of Jesus, which means that everyone is now responsible. This God is no longer unknown. Well, then what? <laughs> what do we do? Stakes are pretty high. He says, God commands all people everywhere to repent, to change their mind, to turn, to stop acknowledging these lifeless images, and to acknowledge God the Creator as God. And implied here is to connect with him. He says, God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness or in fairness, in equity, justice. But he'll do this through a man, through a person whom he has appointed. Huh. Who's that? And of this, of this appointment, of this man, he has given assurance. He's given proof to all by raising him from the dead. This man is Jesus Christ. God will judge the world, Paul says. The lights have been turned on, so everyone is now accountable, responsible. But, take heart. You can connect with your Creator and leave these lifeless gods by trusting in the judge Jesus Christ. So to return then to my opening question, 
What does it mean to call God creator? At least in this passage, what is the doctrine of creation supposed to do in our lives? Is the point to just give us information about how the universe came to exist or how long it took or how old it is, stuff like that? Is that really the point, at least in this passage? Creation here, and I think the doctrine of creation really is about connection. God created us so that we might seek Him. He says it, verse 27, that we might feel around in the darkness and perhaps maybe just find Him. It's really all about connection. Creation means connection. If you study good theology, creation always goes with redemption. Those two themes are often found together. And I think there's a reason for that. One of my favorite theologians, Rowan Williams, we heard a lecture of his, quotes from this lecture. He says... That creation is not about something that happened way back then. But it's about something that's happening right now. It's about the way that God relates to his creatures right now and always. That's what it's about. It's less than about science and history, although those questions are Fine to ask, but when thinking about a theology of creation, what it means to call God creator, it's really only about connection. Creatures connecting with their creator. God built our home. He birthed us as his children. He breathes life into us right now. Now, to use a very uh, modern millennial illustration, I'm sure you guys will love that, um, our life was not downloaded. It's not as though God hit a button and just downloaded life into us at one point, and then he can go off and do whatever, watch the Patriots game or whatever God does. No, that's not what happened. <laughs> Rather, our life is live-streamed from God's being into ours, right now, and as long as we have life. I think an even better, though still millennial and modern illustration, is uh, that we are not battery-powered. How about that? Again, it's not as though God created us and stuck life into us and then went away and we could just kind of live on our own like that. Rather, we are plugged in, plugged in to God himself. That means our breath, our life, our existence is evidence that a connection exists, a live plug-in connection, if you will. And as we know, to plug something in, 
means that the outlet is not far away, but is close by and easy to find. Just like that, God, our God, the Creator, is close by and is easy to find, so easy to find since He became human as Jesus Christ. Creation means connection. I implore you all this morning, connect with your Creator today. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. That's all we can say, really, is thank you. Built our house, feed us life, water, food, breath. You've done all of this that we might reach for you. And in the end, as we reached and couldn't find, you decided to come yourself all the way to become human as the baby Jesus, to forever exist as a human being, as Jesus, you came to us that we might find you. Oh, Lord. It's only really about connection, creation connecting with its creator. Lord, as the flowers bloom and the bees buzz and the birds sing this spring season, Let us, with creation, connect with you, O Lord. We love you and praise you and pray that you'd be with us as we partake of the Lord's Supper this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So hopefully that was a reminder to you that uh, it is Communion Sunday, right? Yep. First Sunday of the month. So um, we have these cups with bread and juice in them. Uh, If you don't have one, please raise your hand. Everybody's got one. All right. If you have one, please find it. You'll need it. And as you're doing that, uh, I'm going to read a quote. It's actually from Willie Jennings, who writes a commentary on Acts. I came across it in my research for this message, and I just thought it fit so well. Um, So hopefully this quote will orient us to what we're about to do together. About the end of Paul's speech, where he mentions the resurrection, Willie Jennings writes the following. He says, All religious speech, no matter how carefully stated, no matter how ecumenical and affirming, no matter how polite, shatters at the resurrected body of Jesus. Because to speak of the resurrection of Jesus is no longer religious speech, but speech that challenges reality, reorients how we see earth and sky, water and dirt, land and animals, and even our own bodies. This is speech that evokes a decision. Either laugh at it or listen to it. Either leave or draw near to this body. 
So we're about to draw near to this body of Jesus in the most intimate way you can. We're about to partake of his body by eating of the bread and the cup. So let us begin with the bread. Oh, I just spilled on myself. All right. On the night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat in faith. Now the cup. After supper, Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples and said, This is the blood of my covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it, all of you, in remembrance of me. Let's drink in faith. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this meal. By it, Lord, help us to connect anew with you. Be with us, Lord, as we continue to worship. And I pray that you would bless us with your presence. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.